Dear fellow redeemed, we consider briefly our reading from Luke chapter 5, the first 11 verses. And maybe, maybe you could sympathize with Simon Peter. And maybe you could sympathize a little bit more if, like him, you were a bit of a small business owner, or in our economy, maybe you worked in sales, where sometimes you'd have a really good month, and then other times you'd be looking at the numbers and wondering, boy, how's this going to turn out? There is Simon Peter, who had been fishing all night, and he's got employees to pay. And they had put in all the hard work, and they knew every nook and cranny and crevice of this lake. And nothing. They even pulled an all-nighter, and if, if you haven't done that in a while, maybe think back to your younger days. And the all-nighter may, may have been fun, or it may have been for school. <laughs> but it wasn't fun the next day. Usually that all-nighter was followed up by half a day of sleep, or at least a little bit of grumpiness and a full pot of coffee. So maybe you can sense a little bit of the, the angst the worry, the exhaustion, the weariness, as Peter got skunked again. We don't know normally how, how often and how well they did, but what we do know is that this is a thriving business, and it's big enough that if they had a few bad fishing days, it's big enough that the employees and the overhead would really make things treacherous. So you can probably sense a little bit of how he is feeling, that feeling in the pit of the stomach as he's looking at the numbers and doing the accounting and thinking, well, maybe tomorrow will be different and we've got to find something to do to keep these guys busy, um, give them a little bit of a make-work project or do some maintenance on the equipment. And then Jesus comes. Peter sits there in the back of his mind and he's wondering and worrying about the other companies that, that um, are involved in his life, like the electric company and the gas company and the bank. And Jesus starts talking. And the crowd is pressing in on him so much that Jesus says to Simon Peter, mind if I use your boat so I can just push out a little ways? And it's a natural setting, a beautiful setting but he just needed a little bit more space. The fishermen had left their, their nets on the shore, and um, he asked Simon Peter to put out a little bit from the shore. He sat down and began teaching the crowds from the boat. And there Peter sits as they are quietly mending their nets with a bit of a knot in his stomach, worry lodged in his mind, and weariness in his bones, there Peter sits and listens. This guy's pretty good. He doesn't, he doesn't teach like the other teachers, and it isn't another set of rules and another set of lists of what to do and how to do and when to do it. And it isn't even nicely encapsulated in a nice three-point list or a five-point checklist of things to improve and things to change. This Jesus... He's a little bit different. 
And when Jesus wraps things up and the crowd starts dispersing, and the crowd looks around to see that the, the shelves at their little stand are mostly empty, the crowd starts dispersing more. And then Jesus turns to Peter. Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way normally. So he shakes the exhaustion and they go further out and say, because you said so, I'll do it. And Peter thought that he knew fear. And Peter thought that he had that pit of worry in his stomach. And Peter thought that he had concerns on his mind and running the numbers and wondering how soon will it be before we finally start turning a profit this month. Peter thought he knew how the whole business worked. Peter thought he knew how fishing worked. You fish all night, you catch your fish, you maybe chop them up a bit and you sell them. And here comes this Jesus. He doesn't speak specifically to Peter's worries and Peter's fears. He just preaches the word. And then he says, go and let your nets down. And Peter learned a whole different kind of fear. Not the fear of, of bills and employees and mouths to feed, but the fear of the prophet Isaiah. That's about the only comparison that, that we've got, at least before us today. As Isaiah is standing there in, in the church, in the temple of God, and all he can talk about is how the train of God's robe is so long and so expansive that it just fills the place up. And his angels are calling back and forth to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And these holy angels, created sometime during the six days of creation and without sin themselves, they cover their faces and they cover their feet they are afraid or so respectful that they don't even dare to expose their faces or their feet before the Lord. And Peter and Isaiah learned a whole different kind of fear. And then we come here. And if you were to follow any of the headlines, which I, I assume most of us do to some extent, and if not following the headlines, at least we have to run a household budget and, and figure out why, <laughs> why that's dripping and why those are flickering and why that strange sound is coming from over there. And we come here. And we don't see a robe of God and the train of his robe filling this place. We don't hear the angels of God calling back and forth, but the closest we get is little children joining in the hymns, or maybe your own monotone doing the same. And we bring those same fears that Peter knew very well, that you and I could probably sympathize with very easily. But do we know the fear that Peter felt? that terror 
that Isaiah felt. Woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. We have come into the presence of God, who created us to love and serve him as his dear children. Yet we have disobeyed him and deserve only his wrath and punishment. And with those words, or some variation thereof, that begin every single worship service, with those words we are reminded of where we stand and where we sit. Not just in a pew here in zip code 543537, not just with familiar and new faces around us, but where we stand and where we sit before the Lord Almighty who has made himself present in his word and who promises to be here in his sacrament. And we don't hear the holy, holy, holy echoing back and forth, and we aren't sitting here with a, a boatload of fish. But my question have we forgotten the fear of Peter? The fear that Isaiah experienced? Because it's simple enough to walk in and to, you know, want to make sure that everybody feels so comfortable and to be so familiar with the way things work or, you know, that page that is probably um, nearly brown after 30 years of use in your hymnal. And it's simple enough to be so familiar, to have these truths so deeply embedded and ingrained in our minds that, that we just take it for granted, or that we walk in, and before we even know it, we look up and we're like, oh, we're at the prayer of the day already. <laughs> Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Woe to me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And maybe, maybe Isaiah had just been gossiping or had let his temper flare a bit too much. And he is very cognizant, very aware of what he had said as he stands there hearing the angels. And Peter, for sure, he recognizes um, all the fear that he had felt even ten minutes previously. All the wondering of how is this business going to keep keep afloat for the next two months. All of those fears fade into the background as Jesus stands right there doing the impossible. And Isaiah stands right there and he hears the glorious song of the angels and he sees the Lord Almighty, our triune God who, who even reflects that reality at the end of, the, at the end of that reading. And we come here. And God hides his glory. And my reaction, at least on occasion, Sunday morning, got to go through the Sunday routine, <laughs> got to make sure that everybody has breakfast on time and, um, and I look somewhat presentable and everything's ready. Just another day. And the words of Peter and Isaiah bring us back to the sharp reality of, of sin and of God's holiness. 
that when Peter, when Jesus does the impossible, he proves who he is. As Isaiah stands there in the temple, God shows who he is. This holy God who cannot tolerate any, any shred of sin, who is white hot in his anger against sin and sinners. And far be it from us to be so familiar with those truths that we never think about them or that they sit in the back of our minds and there's no, no sense of that fear and awe and respect as we come to the place where we don't hear the angels and we don't see the train of the robe and we aren't sitting here with a boat full of fish. But this is the God that we worship still. This is the God that we worship still. And look how God reacts. When his believer, whom he had brought to that place, probably in a vision, when his believer cries out for mercy, God doesn't say, well, it's okay, I changed my mind about that. He brings forgiveness from his altar. He sends an angel to bring forgiveness from the altar. Whether it was the altar outside of the temple or inside of the temple, he doesn't specify. But that angel doesn't even touch God's holy altar, but forgiveness comes from that altar to the exact place where Isaiah most feels the pangs of God's law in his conscience and the terror in his heart. That coal from the altar touches Isaiah's lips. And, and Peter sits there on a pile of fish, <laughs> squirming and flopping in the boat. And he says, Lord, basically echoes Isaiah, get away from me, I am a sinful man. And Jesus responds, have no fear. Have no fear because forgiveness comes from him. And even still today, exactly as in Isaiah's vision, but, oh, well, not exactly, a little bit different, but still today, forgiveness still comes from God's altar. Where God has called his people, God has called normal people, you and me, and pastors don't immediately become perfect once you become a pastor either. Pastors aren't holy. <laughs> As I'm sure you all know already, I didn't have to say that part. <laughs> but God calls his people to follow him. God calls his people together. And together we confess the reality of what God knows already. And we bow our heads and bow our hearts because we recognize where we are in the presence of holy God who has called us here and he wants us here and, and we admit that we don't come here on the basis of what we want to accomplish or with just the promise of if you give me another week I'll make it all better. We come here at least internally admitting all that God knows already. We come here with the, even the ugliness that that we want, want the person sitting next to us to know about. We come here and we confess. Lord, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. 
Get away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Woe to me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And how does our gracious Lord respond? With forgiveness from his altar. With forgiveness in his word. And even though you can't see the train of God's robe filling the temple, for heaven's sakes, he hides himself so that he can be closer to you. And he hides himself under his word and under his sacrament to be closer to you. But even in these these sacraments of baptism and, and the Lord's Supper, he wants to provide a tangible way so that we, we human beings can, can feel and experience that in these physical tools, our Lord conveys spiritual benefit. Isn't that truth like the most amazing thing ever? Coming here and recognizing where we stand before God And he wants us here. And he has done everything to bring us here. And to keep us here. And to make us and to make us righteous to be here. The righteousness of Jesus clothed upon you in those words that you called me here to be your pastor. And I get to announce, because Jesus lived and died and rose again, your sin is forgiven. No promises of trying to do over and do better and do more. A simple, bare admission of guilt and a declaration of what Jesus has done for you. That you don't have to carry that guilt or shame anymore. That you don't have to carry even the the fear anymore. Maybe you did come in here, you know, doing mental calculations like Simon Peter after getting skunked in a night of fishing after the sales have been really low for the last three months. And maybe you did bring your own set of fears and worries and doubts. But look at what Jesus says. Look at what Jesus says to this man who had admitted the reality And this man who had been listening to what Jesus was preaching about, he says, have no fear. And actually, it's a little bit stronger than that. Don't be afraid ever again. Because he has taken away and taken care of the biggest fear that normally we forget about, that biggest fear of standing in the presence of God. And if that's what he has done to provide for you, to provide not just clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, spouse and children, land, cattle, and all that I own, as the first article says, to provide not only those things, but even greater than that, to provide his own son who suffered hell so that you can know that the closest thing you'll ever experience to hell is is this life. This is the only time in your entire existence from now and through eternity, when you will have to deal with sin, when you have to feel guilt, when you'll have people sin against you. And once Jesus takes you out of this world and brings you to him in heaven, you'll never have to experience that again. And so what he says is kind of like reaching from that bucket of blessings that he has chosen for you. And he says, dear Christian, 
Have no fear. Don't be afraid ever again. Just got to pause for a minute and recognize that that's incredibly freeing. Like, you can take a deep breath and relax. It's, it's okay. And then he goes on. Exactly as with Isaiah, and he says to Peter, in Isaiah's case, whom, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah spoke up quickly with cleansed lips. Or Jesus said to Simon, have no fear, from now on you will be catching people. And it's a different word from catching fish. Like, not just hooking them with a hook or bringing them up with a net and bopping them on the head, but catching them alive, catching them for life. To this one who experienced God's grace firsthand, who, who knew the terror that was even greater than the worries of his everyday life, who knew the terror of standing in front of holy, almighty God, and who knew the freedom of being, being declared righteous by Jesus' own work. Jesus now wants to involve that sort of person in his work. You can probably see where that's going. Because we together share in this reality. We together are cleansed again and have that forgiveness of God given to us again, clothed with the righteousness of Jesus again from God's altar where Jesus gives his body and blood for your forgiveness again. And, I mean, let me tell you, there is still, and will always be, and perhaps even more as the world spins down to its final end, but there is still an incredible amount of opportunity for God's church, for God's people to work together in Jesus' ministry. And some of it might be, you know, the, the tending of the nets and the, the maintenance on the, on the outboard and the plugging of the holes and the painting of the oars. And some of it might be um, manning the stand or, um, and, and selling the fish or whatever the illustration is that you want. But it looks the same here as it does here. You can think of it this way. Have you ever taken a young child fishing? It's actually not dissimilar, I suppose, from getting a young child bundled up to go out in the snow. But um, I remember when I, was, when I was a young child, and I got to go fishing with my dad a couple of times. And we were at this, this, uh, this youth camp that had rowboats. And so here is dad with three little kids, um, bright and early. They haven't had breakfast yet, aside from the snack. And, um, and he's getting our life jackets on each of us, getting us all into the boat, pulling the boat out, rowing out, reassuring these crying children that we're not going to sink and we're not going to drown, and even though there's a little water in the boat, it's okay, and then dropping anchor and getting all the poles set up, putting the worms on all the hooks, casting the lines, untangling the lines after they are tangled, and so on and so forth. And eventually, maybe somebody caught a fish, and about 25 minutes after sitting there, Dad finally got a bite, and then the kids were done for the day. 
he was the one who knew how to fish. He was the one who did the work. But he was the one who wanted to involve his loved ones in that task. That Jesus is the one who knows how to fish. And Jesus is the one who does the work. Jesus is the one who wants to involve his people in that task. Who wants to involve his people in this ministry. And it might be something more simple. It might be something that, at first blush, at first glance, you would say, well, is that really, is that really ministry? Yeah, it is. Christians um, organizing a way to, to get together and spend time together, get to know each other, just spend fellowship time together? Definitely. Maybe organizing um, a bit of a phone tree so that when a funeral comes around, then we can coordinate all the food very easily and very quickly. Um, maybe helping with the, the setup for communion or in the AV room with our, our live stream. Hi, YouTube. Maybe, you know, dropping a card in the mail to somebody or even on your own, giving a call to somebody that you know that isn't here, but that should be here. Jesus is the one who does the work. Jesus is the one who knows how to fish. And yet Jesus wants to involve his people in that work. Because, dear friends, the fear is gone. Jesus said, don't be afraid ever again. And to people who knew absolute terror, not just the fears and worries of everyday life, but who knew the absolute terror of standing before holy God, to people who knew that terror, he said, have no fear. Don't be afraid ever again. And set free. You have a purpose at this place. Let's go fishing. Amen. Amen.